Today on the Matt Walsh Show, a report from the Surgeon General shows the extent of the damage COVID lockdowns did to children, although that's not the lesson the government wants us to take from the report. We'll talk about that. And BLM comes out in support of Jesse Smollett. Big surprise. Media Matters launches an attack on the most prominent and revered LGBT author in the nation, if you can believe it. And Prince Harry says that if your job doesn't bring you joy, you should just quit. Is that good career advice from a guy who's never had a career? We'll talk about that and much more today on the Matt Walsh Show. Well, you guys know that I am a my pillow addict. Uh, I cannot sleep really with with any pillow or blanket or anything that is not a my pillow product because they all are. Once once you try the my pillow, you never want to try anything else, and that's why it's so great that my pillow. Uh, just in time for the holidays, wants to give back to our listeners. You can get great discounts on all MyPillow products if you go to MyPillow.com right now and click on the radio listener specials. Get deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, towels, and so much more. For example, MyPillow is offering a buy one, get one free offer on Giza sheets. These are the top quality sheets that you will absolutely love. Again, try these sheets. You're not going to want to use any other sheets again. And uh, we got them buy one, get one free. All MyPillow products come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on the Giza sheets and use promo code DAILYWIRE at checkout or call 800-651-1148. You'll also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including pillow, uh, the, the pillow, obviously, slippers, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets, all of that. That's MyPillow.com and enter DAILYWIRE or call 1-800-651-1148. Tell them DAILYWIRE sent you. That's 1-800-651-1148. The Surgeon General of the United States issued a report this week, which contains some extremely troubling, though not at all unexpected information. It's 53 pages long and details the mental health challenges, quote unquote, that children have experienced over the last year. And mental health challenges is an understatement. The uh, Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, says that most of these uh, uh, problems can be blamed on the coronavirus pandemic. Now, as usual with our government, even when they correctly identify a problem, which is rare, they still make the wrong diagnosis. And that's what they've done here. Here's the New York Times with more on the report. It says, the report cited significant increases in self-reports of depression, anxiety, and emergency room visits for mental health challenges. In the United States, emergency room visits for suicide attempts rose 51% for adolescent girls in early 2021, as compared with the same period in 2019. The figure rose 4% for boys. Globally, symptoms of anxiety and depression doubled during the pandemic, the report noted. But mental health issues were already on the rise in the United States with emergency room visits related to depression, anxiety, and related issues up 28% between 2011 and 2015. Now, uh, a 51% rise in suicide attempts among adolescent girls in one year is staggering, catastrophic. 4% rise in one year among boys is already enormous. But a 51% is uh, unthinkable. It's an epidemic in every sense of the word. It's also exactly what many of us warned would happen. That's what, make this, that's what makes this all the more tragic and infuriating. It was predictable, and thus it was preventable. But the powers that be are determined to miss the point. Because they don't care about the point, and they don't care about kids. They don't care about anybody. Back to the article, it says, uh, The reasons are complex and not yet definitive. Adolescent brain chemistry and relationships with friends and family are important factors, the report noted, as is a fast-paced media culture, which can leave some young minds feeling helpless. Quote, young people are bombarded with messages through the media and popular culture that erode their sense of self-worth, telling them they're not good-looking enough, popular enough, smart enough, or rich enough, Dr. Murthy wrote in the report. 
That comes as progress on legitimate and distressing issues like climate change, income inequality, racial injustice, the opioid epidemic, and gun violence feels too slow. Okay, no, children are not attempting suicide because of climate change or racial injustice. Although the fear-mongering done on these issues certainly doesn't help matters, I'm sure it can contribute to an overall feeling of despair and hopelessness when the adults in your life are all telling you that the world is doomed and your neighborhood will be underwater in 10 years and the planet is dead. And on top of it all, there are legions of white supremacists and racist, murderous cops prowling the streets, executing racial minorities at will. And on top of that, if you're white, that you're born with, a, with the stain of guilt, with blood on your hands that you can't wash off. And if you're black, you're born a victim and you'll never not be a victim. I mean, all that stuff doesn't help. I have no doubt that this messaging contributes significantly to the problem. But that's not climate change or racial inequality hurting a child's mental health. It's the things that adults are saying about those subjects. The false claims they're making, which are causing the damage. And the damage is intentional, again. Likewise, the coronavirus has almost nothing to do with any of this. Not almost. It has nothing to do with any of this. There has not been a 51% increase in suicide attempts due to the coronavirus. If the virus was dangerous to kids and children across the country had to see their friends die from it and worry that they might be next, then we could draw probably a straight line connection between COVID to the child suicide epidemic. But that's not the case. This is a mild disease for kids in most cases. What's hurting them isn't COVID itself, but our response to it. Also keep in mind that there have been uh, pandemics throughout the course of human civilization many of them much worse than this, and many of them affecting kids much more than this one has. Polio, for example. During those occasions, did we see mass epidemics of child suicide? I don't think we did. So why is it happening now? Well, because kids were isolated for no good reason, torn out of their normal routines and social lives for no good reason, made to wear masks for years on end now. Deprived of the ability to see their friends' faces and to be seen. To see people and be seen is one of the most elemental, fundamental aspects of living in a human society. And we took that away. They were treated as though they were diseased and encouraged to treat everybody else the same. We, uh, we made them afraid of social contact with other people. Afraid of the very air they breathe. This is still going on in many places in the country. Look at this video from a post-millennial reporter in uh, Portland. She says, uh, here's the caption with the video. She says, kindergartners are forced to eat lunch outside in 40-degree weather at Capitol Hill Elementary School in Portland, Oregon. They sit on buckets to social distance from their classmates. You can see the video there. Uh, They're sitting on the ground in 40-degree temperatures. And and they've got buckets for, I don't know if that's buckets for uh, tables or... Buckets for chairs. Now, we don't treat prison inmates like this. If this was footage from a prison with inmates forced to sit on the ground in the cold with buckets as tables isolated, we would call it cruel and unusual punishment. A lot of people would. I probably wouldn't if it was prisoners. People would say things like, you know, even a convicted murderer doesn't deserve to be treated that way. And yet a child does. Then they go back into class with their masks on, faceless entities around other faceless entities, sitting behind desks with plastic barriers between them and their classmates. Most of their their parents 
still won't let them socialize like normal after school with their friends. They go home and sit behind a computer screen. It's the only place where they can be normal and free, except the internet is poison for their minds, just like it's poison for ours as adults. Now, the Surgeon General connects the internet to this, and I think for good reason. I mean, it is not a coincidence at all that we've got the child suicide epidemic, which, as the report points out, was already a rising problem uh, before the lockdowns. And, and, and this is all like, unheard of in, in th- through, through human civilization up until now. To have all these kids at such young ages contemplating suicide or committing suicide, this has never happened before. It's not a coincidence that it's happening now while the internet takes over everybody's lives. And it's, it's afflicting a generation that has, that has been raised in cyberspace. They've never known a life outside of it. But what's the connection? I mean, the Surgeon General worries that kids on the internet are learning that they're not good-looking enough, they're not popular enough, they're not smart enough or rich enough. This is superficial, surface-level analysis of the dangers of the internet. It's not wrong, per se, but the problem runs much deeper than that. After all, as long as there's been pop culture and media, there have always been people staring at screens and feeling uglier and less popular in comparison to what they see inside the magic box. But And, and even before that, there, there have always been people looking at other people and saying, well, that person's more attractive, that person uh, you know, has a better personality, they're more popular or whatever. That kind of thing has always happened. But with the internet, a child's, and this is really true of all of us, but we're talking about kids right now, a child's mind is altered, his whole way of being. It's not just a, a TV where you're watching things happen, where you're a mere viewer. The internet is, and now even more so because of the way kids have been isolated, it's the primary mode of engagement with the world. You don't just watch, you engage. You present yourself to the world. You see, on the TV, the world presents itself to you. And that's problematic enough because <clears throat> the presentation that you're seeing is not, is, is, is not accurate. And you can get some wrong ideas about the world. But through the internet, you're getting a false presentation of the world while you present yourself a false presentation of yourself to the world. Your presentation of yourself is not real. It's an avatar. And now with the metaverse on the way, we'll be, we will become avatars in a more literal sense. But that will only be an escalation of a process that's already been underway. The more that kids live their lives on the internet, the more that they're deprived of an authentic self. It's not just that they feel badly about themselves. It's that they, they, they don't have a self at all. They don't have a firm identity. When you see all these kids running around with all their LGBT labels and they've got 50 different labels and it changes by the day and their pronouns change by the day. I mean, these are, these are kids who have no identity. They have no sense of self at all. They don't know anything about themselves. They've been subsumed into cyberspace and nothing is real there. There's nothing firm or consistent to anchor yourself to. Now, I said that this is how they engage with the world, but that's not exactly true. Because engage makes it sound too purposeful and active. Most of us, kids especially, engage with the internet in a state that's something like highway hypnosis. You scroll and click and type, barely noticing what you're doing, or the hours ticking off the clock, or the days and months and years and lives that you've wasted. Now, none of this began with COVID, or more precisely with our response to COVID, but that's made it a lot worse. Literally every significant problem our kids already faced by nature of living in the modern world was made worse, much worse, 
by the COVID policies they've been living under and suffering under for two years. And now the, the people responsible for this will act surprised, but they should have known. And they did know. They knew exactly what they were doing. This was simply a trade they were willing to make for their own sakes. Your kid's life for theirs. That's the trade. Now let's get to our five headlines. I know my family, we have, we do have a front door, but we're, we are one of those families. Like It seems like every family, we do this weird thing where you never use the front door. And so we always use the, the garage, the door that goes through the garage. And that's so many families, that's so many households, that's exactly what they do. In fact, garages are the most frequently accessed entry to the home, but they're often overlooked. The garage is where you know, the people most important to you come and go, and uh, it houses many of your most prized possessions, including your cars, tools, and bikes. So it's just common sense to know what's going on in there, even though so often when we think about security, we, we neglect that part of the house, which is pretty ridiculous when you think about it. Introducing the MyQ Smart Camera by Chamberlain, the only smart camera optimized for the garage, brought to you by the leaders in garage door opener technology, uh, with features like live video streaming, recorded events, motion detection, and two-way communication right from your phone. You can make sure your garage is secure 24-7. Pair it with the MyQ Smart Garage Control, and you'll never have to worry if you left the garage door open. So if you're like me and you're driving to work and then you start thinking, uh, did I close the garage? Did I do this or that? You can just go on your phone and take care of it there. So what are you waiting for? Give the gift of the MyQ Smart Garage camera to tech lovers this season. If you act now, you can save 46% for a limited time by entering Walsh at checkout or on myq.com slash Walsh. That was Walsh at checkout on myq.com slash Walsh to save 46%. Yeah, by the way, I was just talking about uh, how, you know, when you, the kids wear the masks and they're deprived of the ability to, to see and be seen. And um, I thought of a, an essay that I read very recently by the writer Jonathan Franzen and, um, he was, from what I remember in the essay, he was he was talking about the experience. He wrote that essay in like, 90, it was like 1998 or something, 1997. It was in the 90s. And it was it was when, uh, or maybe the early 2000s, when people were first starting to use cell phones. It was like the big, bulky cell phones. And people, they weren't on the internet. They were just texting um, or you know just staring down at them. And he's talking about the experience, lamenting it, like walking down a sidewalk in New York. And, uh, in, and now it's this new thing where everybody passes by, they're just looking down at their phones. And he says something like, the one thing I want from a sidewalk is to see people and be seen. And, and that's what we've lost because of the internet. Um, no matter where you are in public, you know, you're sitting in, a, in a, like a waiting room somewhere, waiting to get your oil changed. It used to be that you would sit there and there'd be other people around and uh, God forbid you'd make some small talk or something, or at least you'd just like, you'd be aware of the presence of other people and you'd be, you'd have this shared experience with them. Might not be the most profound experience, but it's some kind of shared experience waiting there. And now it's, no one even looks at, you don't even know who's, you, you leave and you, you got your oil change and, and anybody asked you to describe anybody who was in the room with you, you couldn't do it because you didn't even notice them. Um, so that was already a problem, but I talk about how the, our reaction to COVID has exacerbated all these problems that already existed. And now with and now with masks and are putting our kids in masks all the time, and when you when you live like where I do, it's it's hard to even fathom that this is still happening because I go out and I don't see any masks. But traveling around the country, in many places in the country, it's still everywhere, and so there are still millions of kids who all they need from a sidewalk or walking down the hallway at school is to see and be seen, and they don't have that. They can't see anything. All they see is eyes. They see no faces. 
the psychological damage of that alone. I mean, isolate that little piece alone. Okay, let's let's raise millions of kids in an environment where we deprive them of the ability to see to have their faces seen and see other people's faces. And let's do that for years and see what happens. This is like a social experiment. That alone, the, the psychological damage being done is hard to fathom. But then you put it on top of everything else and what do you get? Well, you get 51% suicide attempts. All right. Uh, we'll start with this. BLM.com has uh, just put out a statement. And uh, a statement regarding the ongoing trial of Jesse Smollett. Now, keep in mind, of course, nobody was really asking BLM their opinion on this. Nobody was. No one asks BLM's opinion on anything. Nobody wants to know or care. But um, they've gone out of their way. So it's not like they were backed into a corner and they had to say something about Jesse Smollett. They could have said nothing at all and nobody would have noticed. But they wrote this statement, put it right up on the website. Big headline. And here's what they have to say about it. They say, as abolitionists, we approach situations of injustice with love and align ourselves. <laughs> we, we approach situations of injustice with love and with a torch so that we can set the buildings on fire. Um, and we align ourselves with our community. And they align themselves with their community by burning it to the ground. That's one way of doing it. Because we got us. Wait, what? We align ourselves with our community because we got us. I don't even know what that means. This, this, this is a statement from Dr. Melina Abdullah. So this is a doctor, some fake doctor probably, but a highly educated person. And this is what they're writing. Because we got us. So let's be clear. We love everybody in our community. It's not about a trial or a verdict decided in a white supremacist charade. It's about how we treat our community when corrupt systems are working to devalue their lives. In an abolitionist society, this trial would not be taking place, and our communities would not have to fight and suffer to prove our worth. Instead, we find ourselves once again being forced to put our lives and our value in the hands of judges and juries operating in a system that is designed to oppress us while continuing to face a corrupt and violent police department who has proven time and again to have no respect for our lives. In our commitment to abolition, we can never believe police, especially the Chicago Police Department, over Jesse Smollett, a black man who has been courageously present, visible, and vocal in the struggle for black freedom. While policing at large is an irredeemable institution, CPD is notorious for its long and deep history of corruption, racism, and brutality. Um, blah, 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 and uh, so on and so forth. So, they're supporting Jussie Smollett is what they're trying to say. but And they, and they say, well, it, it, we, we believe Jussie Smollett instead of the Chicago Police Department. But what they don't do here, and I'm not going to read the entire statement. I've already read more than you probably needed to hear. But what they don't do is lay out the reasons why they, they believe Jussie Smollett, which if they had good reasons, you'd think they'd do that. They would, they would have their bulletproof points and their, their case that they would make, and they would say, Look, here's why. Boom, boom, boom. He's clearly innocent. They don't do that. They have one line. We believe Jesse Smollett instead of the Chicago Police Department. And, uh, and then the rest of it is all about systemic racism and everything else. What they're ignoring, of course, they're ignoring a lot, which is you know, just basic common sense and the fact that the evidence is utterly overwhelming. But also, um, if this is a he said, he said situation, it's not Jesse Smollett versus the Chicago Police Department. It's Jesse Smollett versus the uh, Nigerian brothers, one of whom is, was his gay lover at one point, according to him. 
Are they part of this white supremacy system? They're the ones who said the, the only reason really that Justice Millett is on trial right now is that the brothers came out and admitted what happened. And yes, threw Justice Millett under the bus at the same time because it was either it was either going to be him or them. So I guess they're part of the white supremacist system. That's what this trial is. Without the brothers admitting it, then we, we'd still know that it was fake, but they, they probably wouldn't have him on trial because they wouldn't have, they'd still have a significant amount of evidence, but it would all be sort of like negative evidence. It, w- it, would, it would be evidence like, well, you claim that these people are out there. We didn't see anything in the security cameras. But here there's positive evidence. We have positive evidence that this was fake because we got the two guys that you uh, conspired with saying that it was fake. And oh yeah, here's the check you wrote them for the fake hate crime. And um, even though Justice Millett described his attackers as white and then pale, you know, I can tell you that Nigerians are neither of those things. So um, really, these are two black men from Africa. It's their word, if you want to look at it this way, against Justice Millett. And so if you're if you're trying, if, if that's if we're doing this based on identity, who's more trustworthy based on their identity and where they fall on the victim scale? Wouldn't the black immigrants from Africa, wouldn't, wouldn't they be the ones that you would rally behind? Justice Millett's whole, their whole case is, uh, is yeah, they're, they're trying to paint the Chicago Police Department as racist, but really their whole case is to throw the brothers under the bus. They had their closing arguments yesterday. The defense attorney had a closing argument. The whole closing argument is that these guys are, you know, psychopaths and, they, and they, this is all them and this is all their fault. Uh, go, go after them. Yes, I did say this is all their fault. Forget about that. That's their whole case. So it's two black men from Africa against the word of a black guy, a, a rich, wealthy, privileged black guy in America. But Black Lives Matter, they don't, the, the point is, they don't care about the truth, obviously. They don't care about what actually happened. They don't care about black people. They don't care about any of the things they talk about. This is all politics. This is all power. That's all it is. All right, let's move on to this. Very distressing news here. Um, This is from Media Matters. It says, headline, Amazon's best-selling LGBTQ book is a hateful picture book comparing being trans to pretending to be a walrus. The best-selling LGBTQ plus book on Amazon is Johnny the Walrus, a hateful picture book by the Daily Wire's Matt Walsh that compares the gender identities of trans youth to a young boy who imagines he's a walrus. Amazon mislabeled the book into its LGBTQ book section, and as a result, it's promoting harmful anti-trans views to its consumers interested in LGBTQ stories. Um, And then they uh, go on. This This is outrageous and very upsetting for me. And I was worried that this would happen, that this kind of homophobia and gay erasure would happen. But for media matters to be doing it is beyond the pale. For for them to be going after and attacking the most prominent, the most revered, the most respected and beloved and best-selling LGBT author, not just in the nation, but in the world, okay? Amazon, they don't say these are the books selling in America. This is the world, and I'm still number one. I've been number one. I've been the, the best-selling LGBT book for a week. And I put my heart and soul into that book and, and with, with the objective and the goal of getting on that list. 
so that I could represent the LGBT community as its most prominent figure and speaker. Uh, and yet I'm being attacked in this way. It, it's very, very upsetting to me. Shame on you, Media Matters. And uh, glad the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, they've joined in. Okay, these Media Matters, the, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, you should be on my side. I'm the one being defamed as the number one pr- most prominent best-selling LGBT author in the country, in the world. But they're coming out against me, and they put out this tweet. They say, this is horrible. Amazon, please remove this book from the LGBTQ category immediately. It is absolutely not an LGBTQ book. It specifically targets transgender people with hateful and dehumanizing rhetoric. Where can I turn now? As the leading voice, as my generation's leading voice in the LGBT community, where can I turn? I can't turn to GLAD. I can't turn to Media Matters. I'm a man without a home. I'm a man on an island. Um, Let's read a little bit more from this. Johnny the Walrus is an anti-trans allegory that compares a child imagining that he's a walrus to society affirming and accepting trans youth, including by providing life-saving best practice medical care when kids go through puberty. In reality, now, I just want to point out, okay, I, the word transgender does not appear in the book at any point. So if you read the book and you think there might be similarities between what we do with quote-unquote trans kids and a kid pretending to be a walrus, I mean, if you are drawing those connections and connecting those dots, maybe you should think a little bit more about that. Um, and uh, the description of the children's book claims that it is about a little boy with a big imagination named Johnny who forced to make a decision between the little boy he is and the things he pretends to be. The book depicts Johnny first pretending to be a walrus by using wood spoons as tusks and socks as fins, then going through the process of trying to become a walrus by eating worms, putting on gray makeup, and visiting a doctor who offers a simple procedure to cut his feet into fins. Notably, Amazon has faced backlash for selling anti-trans books in the past. The company continues to sell the book Irreversible Damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters by anti-trans author Abigail Schreier. Even though employees of Amazon filed an internal complaint in April claiming that uh, the book violates the company's policy against selling books that frame LGBTQ identities as a mental illness. Um, and uh, then it goes on. Okay, so they're, they're very upset. They're very upset that the book exists. They're very, very upset that it got on the LGBT list, which was Amazon's call, not mine. But I'm honored by it. And, uh, and this is what they're doing rampant homophobia over at Media Matters. Disgraceful. All right, what else have we got? Uh, this is from... Okay, this is just a quick thing I want to mention, real quick. The, the BBC reports uh, that Finland's prime minister is uh, 36 years old and went out clubbing until 4 a.m. Now, you can see it right there. So she left her work phone at home and... Uh, and uh, and she, and she, they, like they said, Finland's prime minister, 36 year old, went, went out clubbing till 4 a.m., left her work phone at home, and was therefore unreachable to get a text telling her that she needed to quarantine. So, Santa Marin is her name. And most people on the internet, because they're very immature, um, they're commenting on the fact that she is easily the most attractive world leader, you know, on earth. And that's true. I just want to say it is a very low bar, not taking anything away from her, um, because our politicians, and this is something that 
it's kind of interesting when you think about it because you would think, especially in the in the age of media, um, there would be this requirement. And given how superficial we all are, there would be a requirement that our politicians be attractive. But there, there really isn't, apparently. Our politicians are mostly extremely ugly. And it's embarrassing. We've got a bunch of disfigured dorks running the world. So the standards are very minimal, and she easily exceeds them. But my bigger point here is what sort of person goes clubbing at 36 years old? You know, she didn't quarantine, didn't have her phone. She's, she's the leader of the country. We'll put it that all aside. But 36 years old and out clubbing. The, the oldest age for clubbing is probably 22 which means that if you live in America, you have basically one year where you can do it legally, and uh, it's not completely pathetic. Only a little bit. By 23, you're too, you're too old. At 25, you, at a club, you look like, a, like, a, like an 80-year-old at a skate park or something. But to be doing that at 36 is pretty absurd. Um, all right, let's move to this. We mentioned yesterday the Dante Wright uh, situation. Kim Potter, the officer that shot Dante Wright is on trial. Her trial started this week, and they did jury selection yesterday. Now, Fox has uh, reached out to and has now gotten on film one of Dante Wright's victims. And we've I don't think we've ever seen this before. So this is new, where one of the victims of Dante Wright, we went through his list of crimes that he committed before fighting the cops and getting himself shot by Kim Potter when they were trying to bring him in because he had a warrant for his arrest. They originally told us, remember the media said uh, originally that uh, that they were trying to arrest him because he had a, an air freshener in his car. In fact, the original story was that uh, he had an air freshener hanging from his uh, from his uh, rearview uh, mirror, and so they pulled him out of the car and shot him and executed him. And there were all these there were all these texts there are all these tweets from people on the left saying, well, "What kind of country is this where a man can be executed on the spot for having an air freshener?" Well, it turns out that's not the case at all. Air freshener had nothing to do with it. Uh, he did commit some kind of traffic violation. That's why they pulled him over. And then they discovered, because they run your plates and they look at your ID, and they said, oh, look at, look at this. This is a, a violent felon, and there's a, a warrant for his arrest stemming from a gun charge. Um, and that's why they brought him in. And then we start finding out information about his past. And the one revelation that I hadn't known, I don't think anyone knew until yesterday when it was reported by Fox, is that Dante Wright had previously shot a 16-year-old kid in the head and that uh, person fortunately managed to survive, but they're now disabled for the rest of their lives. And Dante Wright did that. But he also committed armed robbery against a woman and uh, sexually assaulted her in the process and choked her. And now we have Fox track this woman down and she was willing to go on camera. And here she is talking about her experiences and what it's been like. And uh, again, we've, we've never seen this from one of these BLM martyrs where one of their victims is actually willing to speak on camera. So let's uh, watch a little bit of this. Yeah, we were hanging out and drinking and smoking and stuff. Um, And we, it was just very casual. Um, Neither of them flirted with me or her and tried to pursue anything in any other type of way. It was just simply like, we're just hanging out. Um, So I didn't like think of anything, you know, they're being really nice. Somehow um, a conversation got brought up. I talked about my ex and how I've had an abusive past. And so that's why I was kind of sketched out about having Imaje bring this guy over I didn't know. And I mess like in the Snapchat messages, 
I had said that, like, I don't know if I feel comfortable with someone I don't know coming over just because this just happened. Like, I just got out of a relationship where I'm having trouble trusting men. Um, and it's just, yeah. And they end up, Dante himself, like, actually, we were, t we, we had started talking and he said that any man who who puts his hands on on a woman and abuses them deserves to rot in jail. And so that was very ironic to me. People have done that to me over and over and over and over. And so like when he did it, it was just the last straw for me. It's like how many men are going to take money for you for you to finally stand up for yourself? And so like, that's kind of how it was for me. I didn't want him to take it because I was tired of men taking advantage of me and walking all over me and trying to like make me feel worthless. Now, if, uh, if feminists were not for the most part soulless cowards, they would be celebrating this woman. Um, treating her as a hero because in fact what she's doing here is is actually heroic and uh takes a whole lot of courage you know there's a reason why we as i said we never see this every blm martyr martyr every blm martyr has has left a trail of victims in their wake and then they're celebrated and canonized and they've got their murals all over the place uh, which means that the, the, the victims of this person, they have to walk by. I mean, imagine George Floyd's victim. And we've never seen anything from her. We don't even know. Um, not even sure if we know her name. But she has to walk by and see his mural. And, and, uh, and you know, schools are going to be named after him. And they're going to have George Floyd laws and everything, legislation named after him. And she has to live in that world now. Where the man who abused her is celebrated as a martyr. So many women have been in this position and you can see why they wouldn't want to come and speak out because there's almost nothing in it for them. The media is not going to listen, not going to care. Feminists are not going to rally behind them. Um, they just put themselves in line for more abuse by speaking out. So it takes a whole lot of courage to do it. And she, and that's exactly what she's doing. And on top of that, what she's talking about in that clip there, where she says, I didn't want to let him do it. It's happened too many times. What she's referring to is that when Dante Wright, who, was in, who she was skeptical about inviting him into the home just because she didn't know him, and she decides to do it anyway, and she lets him stay the night there, and he's an absolute sociopath. No, and, and she had shared with him the, how she's been abused in the past and, and, and what, that's, what that's done to her. And he's listening to that, according to her story, and saying, oh, yeah, any man who does that is terrible. Knowing what he plans to do. Absolute sociopath. Like I said yesterday, this guy's a, he's a monster. This is not a misguided youth. This is a monstrous person. We're supposed to weep that he's gone and that the world is now deprived of his presence. I don't weep. I don't mourn it. I tell you that I am not sad that, that a guy like Dante Wright is gone. I am not. So he's sitting there and he, and he you know, hatches this plan. And then we also know, by the way, Right before, the next morning, he decides he's going he's gonna to stick the gun in her face and rob her. 
And he goes into the, to her bathroom before he does this, and he starts taking pictures for Instagram, posing with his gun. And the police have those. We know that, that, that those are out there. So it certainly lends a lot of credibility to her story. Um, but he points the gun at her face, starts reaching his hand into her bra, sexual assault, looking for the money, is choking her, and she doesn't give it to him. She actually fights back. And, um, and he ends up running away without getting the money. She had like $800 in cash from her job on her. And uh, he, she ends up, she keeps it. She fights back against an, a guy pointing a gun at her and says, I'm not giving you this money. And uh, he runs away. And now she's out in front of the media speaking the truth about this guy. This is a very courageous woman, and, uh, but not going to get any credit at all from feminists or from anyone in the media. Okay, next we have from the Daily Wire. It says, pro-life activists and abortion advocates are gearing up for an intense political battle in the states of uh, if Roe v. Wade and uh, precedent from the decisions that followed it are overturned. And now a new poll from Politico shows how Americans might be looking at abortion heading into the midterm elections. According to Politico, 42% of respondents to the poll said they would vote for a candidate who doesn't align with their views on abortion, compared to 32% who said that the candidate's stance will determine their vote. Another 26% were unsure or had no opinion on the matter. The poll also discovered that 44% of people who were part of the survey said they had, not, they had heard not much or nothing at all about the Mississippi case. Almost two-thirds either said they didn't know how likely the court was to overturn Roe or said that the court isn't likely to overturn the president. Uh, the president, the poll also went into details regarding how respondents consider abortion in general. A total of 52% of respondents said abortion should remain legal in most or all cases compared to 36% who said it should be banned in most or all cases. And 45% said Roe should not be overturned compared to 24% who said it should be. Okay. The interesting thing, thing about a poll like this is that it gives you, no matter what side of the issue you're on, there are things that you can latch onto and call it a, a win for your side. Um, one thing that I, I've actually seen some conservatives talking about the results of this poll in a positive way because it seems to indicate, unlike what you hear from the left. Now, the left says, well, if Roe is overturned, it's going to be a huge voter backlash against Republicans and conservatives. And uh, this poll would seem to indicate that's probably not going to be the case. But then on the negative side, if you're a pro-lifer, it's yeah, more than 50%, according to the poll anyway, we think that abortion should remain legal. The main thing we take from this poll and this is, this is the greatest hurdle for pro-lifers, and it always has been, and it remains the greatest hurdle, even though the pro-life movement has made great strides, especially in the last 10 years or so, even no matter what happens with this case, whether Roe is overturned or not, the pro-life movement has made enormous strides over the last 40 years and especially over the last 10. But the greatest hurdle that we face in the pro-life movement has always been and still is not the people who disagree with us, but it's apathy. That's the greatest hurdle that the majority of people are kind of apathetic about it. They don't have strong feelings one way or another. You know, I would rather hear, I would rather a poll uh, tell me that a majority of Americans are passionately in favor of abortion. I would rather that than a poll where you find out that a majority of Americans are kind of like, eh, yeah, I don't know, I'm not paying attention. Because at least when people are passionate, then they're engaged on the issue. You can talk to them about it. You know, there's, there's something there that you can kind of grab onto. Um, but when people are apathetic, the, the first thing you have to do is get them to care 
And once you've done that, then you have to convince them that you're right about your position. The convincing them that you're right, in my experience, is a lot easier than getting them to care. That's the hardest part, is getting people to care if they don't. And if it's the kind of person who doesn't naturally, automatically care about the fact that 60 million babies have been killed, if they're already apathetic about that and kind of yawning and shrugging their shoulders, uh, it is a, it is a, that is quite an obstacle to get over. It's not impossible, but it's an obstacle. And so that remains, I think, the greatest challenge for the pro-life movement. All right, Hillary Clinton was interviewed on the Today Show where she read a portion of the speech that she would have given had she won the presidency. And it is equal parts pitiful and hilarious. Let's watch it. So I didn't, as you know, write a concession speech because even though we had a lot of bumps those last 10 days, uh, I, I still thought, you know, we could pull it out. So I worked on um, a speech that really was about my journey and had a, had a real emphasis on my mother's life and journey as a way of, you know, making it clear that, yes, I would be the first woman president, but I, I like everybody, uh, stood on the shoulders and lived the lives uh, and the experiences of those who came before us. I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me. You will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the president of the United States. Oh, that's great. I hadn't even watched that entire clip because I couldn't get through it. It was so cringe inducing. That is, uh, (laughs) that's even better than her tweet that she sent out where she uh, wished herself a happy birthday to this future president. And that tweet lives in infamy. uh, And she's roundly mocked for it. But here, here she goes and does this as well. That's amazing. She cannot get over the fact that she did not win. It has ruined her. But imagine being such a megalomaniac, such a narcissist, that your, your life is ruined by the fact that you're not the president. Right? It's, it's, there's, there's only been a relative handful of presidents of American presidents that have existed, you know, like the vast majority of Americans who ever lived, vast, vast, match, like 99.99999, et cetera, 99% of all Americans have, have they've, they've done many amazing things, but they haven't been present. So if you're not the president, all that means is that you're, you're just in that category with almost every other American who has ever lived. And uh, to be utterly devastated by that fact just shows what a narcissist she is. And she also says, I thought it was curious, she says that she was standing on the shoulders of those who came before her. Okay, I'm familiar with that phrase. Then she says, I lived the lives of those who came before me. Is this some sort of Hindu reincarnation thing that she's doing? I I don't quite understand. All right, one other thing really quick. This is uh, pretty fascinating. We we played for you yesterday, a couple days ago, the museum in D.C. that now offers an audio tour with a genderless voice. So uh, the genderless voice is a new thing. And it's quickly become, it's quickly catching fire and becoming pretty common. And now CNN has actually jumped on the bandwagon. And they had a news report yesterday uh, delivered by uh, a genderless voice. So let's play clip seven. Check this out. 
You know the biggest media story this weekend. It's the firing of Chris Cuomo from this network, CNN. Now, I've been working the phones ever since this was announced yesterday uh, uh, evening. Uh, frankly, I've been on the phone until the last five minutes here getting information about what happened. Wow. So lifelike, yet so neutered. That's all. That was the joke. And I, I, guess I totally stole that joke from somebody in the YouTube comments, by the way. So credit to the uh, SBG member who came up with that one. Well, if you own a home and haven't refinanced, what are you waiting for? Now is the time to do it because mortgage rates are at historic lows again, which means you could easily drop your rate and your monthly payment. And uh, we could all you know, we could all use a little bit extra money every month, especially these days with everything being so expensive. All you've got to do is call American Financing, America's home for home loans. Take advantage of a free mortgage review. That's right, free, meaning there's no pressure, no obligation, no upfront fees. Just a simple conversation with a salary-based mortgage consultant, somebody who is uh, going to listen and guide you so you're getting a custom loan that achieves your goals. From lower rates to shorter terms, even the ability to access cash from your equity, they're ready to find you the best deal possible. You could save up to $1,000 a month. You may, be even, you, may, you may be able to also skip two mortgage payments, so you're um, getting a lot of upfront savings as well. And you could pre-qualify for free by calling 866-569-4711. That is 866-569-4711. Again, that's 866-569-4711. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS, 182334, NMLS, Now let's get to the comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Dex says, hey, Matt, actual Spanish speaker here. The guy who corrected you about bench is wrong. Both El Banco and La Banca can both mean the bench or bar stool or the financial institution. So you're correct. All right. So I was still, I was right. Well, that's good to know. But now I'm even more confused. So if you refer to El Banco in Spanish, the person you're talking to, they won't know if you mean a bank, a bar stool, or a bench. I guess this is why I took three years of Spanish and none of it. I mean, not one little bit of it actually seeped in. Which is why, by the way, teaching foreign languages in a, this is a separate subject, but teaching foreign languages in a public school setting is a total waste of time. Okay, you're not going to teach someone. I know that they do it to kind of check the box and the the diversity box and everything, but nobody's going to learn a foreign language by being exposed to it for 45 minutes at a time, like three days a week for, you know, for for a couple of years. If you're going to learn a language, you have to be immersed in it, really. And uh, so there's just no point in doing it. LT says, what did you think about Boebert, Congressman Boebert, taking a Christmas picture with all of her kids holding guns? The libs were hysterical. She goes to the Matt Walsh School of Trolling, apparently. And yeah, you can see the picture there. Um, And she was, so that's the picture. All of her kids are holding guns. The Boeberts have your six, uh, Representative Thomas Massey. Representative Massey was the first one to take a picture where he was with his kids and his wife, and they were all holding guns, and they were, they were in front of a Christmas tree. It was like a Christmas, there was a Christmas card picture. And, uh, and then the libs were pretty mad about that, and so then Boebert does her own, and the libs were mad about that one too. I might surprise you. I'm, I'm a little bit here, and uh, I'm going to be a total lib about this. Not really, not that bad, but I will say that I'm not very crazy about posing with guns for photos. Um, It's one thing if you're like doing something with a gun and someone takes a picture of you, like you're out hunting or target practice or something, but just posing with the gun for the picture, especially for the purpose of trolling the libs. Now, guns are great. Trolling the libs is great, obviously, but I don't like combining the two. 
especially when kids are involved, because it sends the message that the gun is a toy. And it, it's a, I mean, it's, what you're saying is that it's a prop because you're literally using it as a prop. Um, and it's not that, right? Guns are tools. That's what they are. They aren't anything more or less than that. And I think that's the message that we should send. When the libs are really angry about guns, our message should be, you're freaking out about a tool. That's all it is. It has a certain purpose. Now, some people like to collect them. People like to collect tools. That's fine. But if you saw someone, this is what I look at it. I look at it like this. If you saw someone posing for a staged picture with a hammer, right, because they wanted everyone to think that they, you know, that they're construction worker and that they like to go out back to the shed and, and build uh, decks or whatever. Um, if you saw that, you would think this person's kind of a dork. And that's sort of how I feel about posing for pictures with your guns to impress people or to show off or to upset people or whatever. Uh, it's a bit dorky and it also gives the wrong impression about guns, I think, especially to kids. I think it's, there's n- nothing wrong at all with exposing kids to gun or guns early on. I think you should because you're teaching them how to be around guns. You're making it less mysterious. You know, if you have the gun in your house and you treat it as this mysterious thing and, and you say, don't even, don't even look at that item, right? Which is what a lot of parents end up doing if they have guns. But then you're just making it, you're keeping your kid in ignorance, first of all, about the gun. And they're not going to know how to use it or be safe around it. But you're just making them more interested in it in the wrong kind of way. So to get rid of the mystery and say, this is a gun, this, it's a tool. Uh, if you use it the right way, then it's perfectly safe. If you don't, really horrible things could happen. So I think that's a great thing to teach kids. But when you have them posing for pictures and everything, then again, I think it just kind of sends the message that this is a toy, this is a prop. And so I'm not, I'm not big into that. Um, Social Hazard says, it seems when someone from the Daily Wire writes a book, that's all they want to talk about. Michael Knowles didn't shut up about Speechless, and now Matt Walsh is doing the same. Well, yeah, this is like complaining that the only thing Kellogg's wants to talk about is Kellogg's cereal. It's, you know, it's not the only thing we talk about, but when you have a book, you have to market it. That's, it's a product that you're marketing. So I'll let you behind the curtain a little bit. That's, that's what that's all about. Although I, I do agree with you in general that one of the unfortunate things about releasing a book is that you have to talk about it all the time. And you do, you have to, to let people know that it's out there and so that you'll sell the copies. Uh, your publisher kind of requires that going into it, that you have to talk about it. But that's why I like Johnny the Walrus, because there's so much surrounding this book to talk about. And it's all so funny that actually it's been a joy to promote the book. And uh, Patrick says, Matt, which food... Uh, would you be going? Would it be worth going out at two a.m. during a uh, polar vortex for? Mine is White Castle. Yeah, definitely not Subway. Like Jussie Smollett. I mean, sub. It's it's never worth going into Subway at any time of day, no matter the temperature. You're better off picking pieces of a sandwich out of the garbage at like a Firehouse Sub or a Jersey Mike's or something than going into Subway. Um, I'd probably go out at two a.m. for Five Guys. I mean the restaurant. Smollett might go out for five guys to at 2 a.m. As the Biden administration continues to attempt to force vaccine mandates on American citizens, it's more important than ever that we continue to fight it. And so, so far, you know, the pushback has been working. Um, It's been successful. Not only has the OSHA mandate received 
a nationwide stay. This week, a federal court enjoined the Biden administration from enforcing its federal contractor vaccine mandate as well. So this is where we're, we're having real success with this, fighting back against the Biden administration. It's all great news, but uh, it it's, uh, doesn't mean that we should take this and stop applying pressure and get apathetic. We don't want to do that as the Biden administration itself is not backing down. Most recently, Biden announced his winter COVID plan, which which includes the extension of the federal mask mandate for public transportation, as well as the consideration of requiring Americans to be fully vaccinated in order to fly domestically, which means that if you want to visit your family for the holidays, you might have to drive all across the country instead of taking a plane. That's what they want to do. And that's why we have to continue to fight back. Um, But we need your help. If you haven't signed our petition against Biden's vaccine mandate yet, I need you to head over to dailywire.com slash do not comply to add your name. We have so far 750,000 signatures. We want to get to 1 million because that's when you really make a statement. So go to dailywire.com slash do not comply. And if you haven't heard yet, I am the top LGBT author in the world. Media Matters doesn't like it. I love it, though. I think it's great. Uh, I think everyone else can appreciate how wonderful that is. And if you want to be a part of this LGBT uh, literary sensation. If you want to have a copy for yourself, well, I don't have the copy with me on the desk. Somehow I don't have my Johnny the Walrus copy. I knew I was missing something from this show. Um, but you can get your own copy at johnnythewalrus.com. Reserve your, your copy now of this timely, important masterpiece, johnnythewalrus.com. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today we're going to cancel Prince Harry, who uh, we really shouldn't be calling Prince anymore, but I'm not sure how else to refer to him. feels sort of weird to just say Harry. So for lack of a better name, Prince Harry was interviewed by the website Fast Company, where he delivered insights and advice on a number of topics, despite having no special insight into any of them or any other topic. Most absurdly, he had a few tips for navigating the working world. Now, this is strange coming from a man who has never had a job in his life. Uh, Well, up until now, I mean, that's not true anymore. He has a job now. He is a working man, jumping in the pickup truck every day, lunch pail in hand, punching the clock over at the mental health company Better Up, where he is a chief impact officer. Now, I have no idea what a chief impact officer is. I assume it's the corporate equivalent of being a figurehead in the royal family. So Prince Harry is perfect for the job, I suppose. Out of curiosity, I did look up the uh, the title of chief impact officer on Google to see what role a person in such a position fills in the company. And I found an explanation on a website called Kindred. Apparently says this site, there are two positions that sometimes get confused. There's chief impact officer and then chief purpose officer. Um, So we have one chief in charge of impact and another one in charge of purpose. And here's what it says. Chief purpose officers and chief impact officers have similar objectives to drive impact through organizations, mission, vision, and values. However, there are key differences between the two roles that make them distinct. Generally, CPOs operate on a micro scale internally, ensuring that a company's purpose is embedded throughout its practices. On the other hand, CIOs tend to have an external focus around the impact of the business's activities and how they align with the company's mission and values. Okay, well, that clears things up. Needless to say, Chief Impact Officer Prince Harry has a lot of of advice to offer folks in the working world. And his first piece of advice is that you should quit. That's the advice. Reading from the interview, the question is, COVID has accelerated a lot of trends in the workplace, like increased burnout and job resignations. How have you adapted your strategy to address these things? Here's the answer from Prince Harry. That's such a great question because it brings us back to the thesis of Better Up and the work Alexi and Eddie and the team have been doing for the past eight plus years before I arrived. And also my personal belief and work in the mental fitness space. While on the surface, it looks like these last couple of years brought all these issues to the foreground. 
The reality is that these struggles and issues have been brewing for quite some time. We are just at the beginning of the mental health awakening. This work has never been more important because people are finally paying attention, and a big component of this mission is building awareness and continuing to pioneer the conversation. I've actually discovered recently, courtesy of a chat with Better Up Science board member Adam Grant, that a lot of the job resignations you mentioned aren't all bad. In fact, it's a sign that with self-awareness comes the need for change. Most people around the world have been stuck in jobs that didn't bring them joy, and now they're putting their mental health and happiness first. This is something to be celebrated. Now, we're going to try our best to breeze past phrases like mental fitness space and pioneer the conversation. The thing to focus on here is that Prince Harry is telling us to celebrate quitting. And there's been a lot of that kind of thing in our culture recently. As you remember, the most heroic and laudable performance at the Olympics, said the media, was Simone Biles when she quit on her team. Because quitting is the new heroism. We used to think that it took courage and tenacity to do things you don't want to do in order to achieve some greater goal. Now we say that the real courage and tenacity is to throw up your hands and say, never mind, this is too hard, I quit. Prince Harry says that it's good to quit your job in order to put your mental health and happiness first. And that you should do this uh, if your job doesn't bring you joy, quote unquote. Now what he forgets to mention is that he was born rich and will be rich for the rest of his life through no effort of his own. He could afford to wait until he was 37 to get his first job, which isn't even a real job. But most people are not in that position. So as always, the leftist ethic is, is not only wrong, but born from privilege. For most people, quitting your job will leave you unemployed and poor, which is certainly not the path to mental health and happiness. The unemployed are not traditionally seen as a community which best exemplifies mental health and well-being. Now, if you can leave your job for a new one, a better one, that's great. But then we're talking about changing jobs, not simply quitting jobs. What you cannot do in spite of Prince Harry's suggestions, or should not do, is leave your job because it doesn't make you happy and then wait around on the unemployment line until a happier job comes along. This is an especially bad idea because it's very unlikely that you'll ever find any job that makes you happy and brings you joy. And that's not to say that, that your job ought to make you miserable or that you ought to stick with a job that you hate indefinitely. By all means, look for another job while you currently still have the one you hate and then make the switch once the new job is secured. But for a lot of miserable people in the workforce, the problem is that they're expecting something from a job that a job can't provide them. Joy is found in that which most deeply fulfills you, completes you, as Jerry Maguire would say. Joy is found in your faith, your family, your passions. Now, a very small group of people on earth might make a living doing the thing that they are absolutely the most passionate about. Most people do jobs that pay the bills. And a job that, you know, they can feel like they contribute something worthwhile. And where there's career advancement and, and, and financial stability and so on. Prince Harry looks down on that from a position of privilege. He says, no, if you aren't deeply on fire with passion about your job, then uh, just quit. And as a multimillionaire born with a silver spoon and a, and a literal royal crown on his head, that's a strategy that he's able to pursue. But most people can't. And in fact, there's something quite admirable, I think and dignified and good about people who work jobs that they maybe don't love, and yet they do it in order to fulfill their responsibilities and to care for their families and so on. For them, the job is an act of love for those who depend on them. And they do find joy there, not so much in the job itself, perhaps, but in the reason for the job. You know, I think about the guys who collect the, the garbage in my neighborhood, especially in the summer in the South when it's 95 degrees with humidity of 145%. 
and all the trash is putrid and covered in maggots and they have to come to my house where we've got dirty diapers in the trash that have been stewing there for six days. Um, does that bring them joy? Is the job itself a cause of joy or happiness? Would Prince Harry approve? Now, I don't know for sure. I'm not inside their heads, of course, but, but, but I'm going to guess it's not. I'm going to guess the, the act of cleaning up garbage does not in itself bring joy. Does that mean that those guys aren't happy or joyful? No, certainly not. In fact, from the outside anyway, they appear to be very cheerful, more cheerful than me in the morning when I'm on my way to a job in a climate-controlled environment where I sit here in my comfortable chair, which a sponsor pays me to sit in. They're more cheerful probably because they know something about happiness that Prince Harry does not know, and I struggle to keep in mind half the time, and that is that happiness is so often a matter of what you choose to pay attention to, where you choose to set your focus. You can be miserable in the greatest job in the world or doing the most fun thing or even around your loving and beautiful family if you choose to pay attention to the aspects of those experiences that you don't like. Happy people are mentally disciplined. They know how to control their emotional attention. And here's the other secret of happiness that you'd hope the uh, chief of happiness at a mental health company would know, but he doesn't. The worst thing you can do if you want to be happy is actively try to be happy. If you're pursuing happiness for its own sake, you're not going to find it. If you're looking simply for a job that makes you happy, you will never find it. You have to shoot for things beyond that, things perhaps more solid, more firm, and then you'll find happiness in the bargain. See, all, all parents know that family vacations, for example, especially with young children, are very stressful, and there tends to be a lot of unhappiness involved in them, ironically. And the reason is that it, it, it's a big, elaborate thing that you're doing with the express purpose of being happy. So you're saying, okay, from this day to this day, we're going to spend X amount of money from our vacation budget to be happy. And then things don't go exactly as you plan, and you aren't as happy as you wanted, and then you become even less happy because you're mad that you aren't happy. And this is a microcosm of life. The happiest moments you have as a family are the times when you're not all trying desperately to be happy. You're just being together for the sake of being together. And then you find, well, look at that. We're happy. And I think the same holds true on an individual basis. It's true at your job. You can even find happiness while cleaning up trash. Maybe not because of the tra trash, but alongside it. Happiness can be found in many unexpected places. You just have to stop expecting it. And as for your job, try to find something that will allow you to care for yourself and your family, where you can utilize your skills, where you can have some financial stability, hopefully contribute something to the world. And if you find that, and you focus on the right things, you'll probably find happiness, as long as you aren't looking too hard for it. And those are all the reasons why, who's canceled? Oh, yeah, Prince Harry is canceled today. And that'll do it for us. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. 
Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, California unveils a plan to become an abortion sanctuary if Roe versus Wade is overturned. I am so glad I took my company and left. That's today on the Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Mm-hmm. 